your leaders because uh, truly, go ahead and do that, yeah. Thank you. A, the study totally doesn't work without them. <laughs> and, and I'm really aware of that. Uh, and, and B, they work really hard and they put up with um, a lot of typographical errors and a lot of really strange questions that nobody knows the answer to. I don't think Paul even knows the answer to some of those questions I ask. Uh, so I, I just appreciate so much that um, they put up with me and work so hard at the study and love on you and shepherd you in a way that I can't do with everybody. So uh, thank you, ladies, so much for your continued, and a couple of them have been with me for like half my life. So it's, uh, well, not that long, but, uh, but I just really appreciate that. And uh, thank you. Oh, thank you, Wilma. Thank you. Now, do you have any questions on some of those weird questions I asked this week? You guys are getting so good. No questions, really? Seriously? You're, you're good? We're good? Okay. Well, then let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for this day. Thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for your word uh, and for all that Paul has taught us through Galatians and Philippians. I pray as we finish out uh, Philippians, Father, that we would be reminded once again uh, to stand firm and how that is that we stand firm and to rejoice always, Father. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in order to kind of understand, I, I told you in the lesson this week that that's just a really weird place to cut it off. Cut it off right in the middle of my own life passage, which just really about killed me to do it. But uh, so in order to really understand where Paul is starting off in verse 12 of chapter 3, we kind of need to back up uh, and look at where he began talking about his own life and his own accomplishments and how he views those. So beginning actually at verse 3 uh, in chapter 3, Paul gives us what, what I call his fleshly resume. In other words, he's telling us those things that he accomplished in the flesh, those things either by virtue of his birth or his own effort he has accomplished in life. And he begins by saying this, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. So he's saying if anybody could do this, it would have been, if anybody's resume was good enough for God, it was my resume. But he places no confidence in any of this. Notice that he places no confidence in any of this because he knew that those things could not make him, nor could any effort on his part, make him right with God. They cannot, they will never justify there is no set of works that will lead to our justification, our being made right with God. So then he goes on to talk about what happened after he was converted, what his view was of those former accomplishments after his conversion. Beginning in verse 7, he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider lost. By the way, this is where my life passage begins, and it's long. I'll tell you when it ends. You just keep reading. It, it doesn't even end here. Uh, and you know, because, well, it's a lot of words. What's wrong with that? Uh, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. So Paul considers all of that that he had accomplished or that he had been given by birth, all of those accomplishments, not only that, but any accomplishment anyone could ever uh, attain as a loss. It didn't profit him. It was actually a disadvantage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. It, it's all a loss. In fact, he goes even further than that. And in the NIV, it's, he calls it rubbish. But in the KJV, in the King James Version, it's actually, you don't say these words too often, it's actually more literal as dung, as poop, as a cow pie, as I heard one pastor call it. All of those accomplishments, nothing. They're dung because Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings and to become like him in his death in order that he may somehow attain to the resurrection of the dead, that he may somehow come to that point uh, when he and all believers will stand before Christ and be just like him, be perfect, just like him. But that, that passage could lead to a misunderstanding. It could lead people to think, well, Paul's already there then. He's telling us he's perfect already. And so Paul wants to forestall any sort of misunderstanding that people might have about what he has already attained. And he begins to do that then in verse 12. And I, I don't know, okay, how many, you're not going to want to raise your hands. How many of you are old enough to remember on Saturday Night Live, Father Guido Sarducci? Do you remember that? I, we loved Father Guido Sarducci in my house. And one of my favorite Father Guido, and those of you who are too young, just follow along with me. He was a character, a, a recurring character on Saturday Night Live who was a, was a, a really weird priest, uh, Italian priest. And uh, he tried at one point to, uh, Paul McCartney had been arrested for pot and put in jail in Japan. And so he wanted an interview with Paul McCartney, so he decided to get himself arrested and put in the jail with Paul McCartney. In the meantime, this is so spiritual, let me tell you. In the meantime, Father Guido Sard or Paul McCartney was released. And so they're, they're going live with Father Guido Sarducci in a, in a J Japanese prison. And he's saying, help. <laughs> they do not understand what I'm saying, but, <laughs> but they, they cannot understand what I'm saying, but they can understand expressions. So I must say this quietly, help. I'm going to repeat it because I think it bears repeating. Help. <laughs> so, so he keeps saying, I think it bears repeating. That's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, I'm not perfect. I think it bears re repeating. I'm not perfect. And both in verse 12 and in verse 13, he thinks it bears repeating. He's not perfect. Not that I've already attained all this or already been made perfect. And then I think it bears repeating. And ironically, Paul tells us later that this very understanding of himself, that he's not perfect, is a mark of maturity in Christ. The understanding of how far we have to go yet. 
that we are still a work in process is a mark of a maturity. So he says then, um, well, let's read, let's read what he says. He says, not that I've already, been I've already obtained all this or already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I, do, I think this bears repeating. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining for what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take a, such a view of these things. I'll come back to that in just a minute. We'll start there. He uses a lot of athletic and even war imagery in here, and I think his reason for that is to show us the strenuousness, the, 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 the uh, effort that he gives in, in wanting to become more like Christ, that obedience matters in that. And so he's telling us that, that, that there's strenuous uh, effort in growing in Christ-likeness. But then he says why he presses on in verse 12. He presses on because he says, um, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I have loved that verse for a long time. And I would tell people, in fact, I've said it in this class when I've talked about how uh, it's important for us to uh, know what scripture says. It's even more important for us to know what it means. And I would say part of my life passage is I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I love that. I think it's beautiful. I have no idea what it means. But it's beautiful. And, and so what Paul is telling us here is why he presses on. I do understand it now, so don't get worried. That, that word where it says for which or that for which is, is the word epho. And actually, more likely... Or, or more often in Greek, it, it's, it's causal, as the theologians would say. It's stating a cause for something. So rather than saying, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus, Jesus took hold of me, Paul is saying, I press on to take hold of it because Christ Jesus has already taken hold of me. Uh, and then what then is, is he's, what is the it? What is the that? Of what is Paul taking hold? I press on to take hold of it, to take hold of that. What is it that he's taking hold of? Uh, well, he's taking hold of all of those goals that he told us about in verses 8 through 11. He says, I press on to know Christ. I press on so that I might know Christ. I press on so that I may be found in him one day, that one day when I stand before Christ, I will be found in him. Therefore, I press on toward those things. And I press on because on a road to Damascus years ago, Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's already got hold of me. He's the one that's making it possible for me to press on. And so, therefore... I press on. I get this verse. I love this verse even, even more that I understand it. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already attained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on because on a night, late one night in 1978, alone in my room, Jesus Christ took hold of a young girl named Amy. And he's never let go. And so I press on. What a beautiful verse. It makes even more, it's even more beautiful now that I understand it. And then Paul says, forgetting what is behind, which I heard Patsy Claremont once say, he didn't write, denying what I know took place, uh, but forgetting what's behind that he's forgetting. 
I think it's at least two things. One is his own accomplishments that he's just written about. That he, he, that he says he puts no confidence in. So I forget about those. I don't focus on those. I don't place confidence in the flesh. When we begin to do that, when we begin to remember what we've accomplished, it's deadly to our spiritual growth. Because we begin to think, look what I did. Hmm, how spiritual am I? I'm really growing up in this, aren't I? I'm gonna tell, and I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to tell you a quick story because it happened right in this room. As I was preparing beforehand, I remembered this story. Fifteen and a half years ago, my husband made me leave a church I loved, and I did not want to leave. And he was convinced we were supposed to, and so I did. And the first Sunday we came to Brookside Church, I was sitting right about there. This was our sanctuary. And here's what was going through my mind. Look how spiritual I am. I have left my church where my parents and my in-laws worship. I have dragged my children out of a church they love to be here. I am so spiritual. Do you want to know what Brookside then Faithy Free was doing that week? They were commissioning a young family that had, I think, been an engineer that had sold everything they owned to go to Bosnia to be missionaries. And I wept. I wept. Oh, I'm real spiritual. And on the way home, I said to Jeff, I don't know where we're supposed to end up at church, but I was supposed to be in that sanctuary this morning. When we begin to look at our accomplishments, we, it's spiritually deadly to us because we begin to think that we had something to do with it. Secondly, Paul is forgetting his past failures. He refuses to be burdened by his past failures. And when we do that, it paralyzes us from moving forward. Because we begin to think, I'm not worth this. God can't use me. I'm not good enough. God can't love me. Look what I've done. He could never forgive me. He could never use me because of those things that I've done. Satan loves it when we think that way. Because it paralyzes us. Listen, ladies, if you're feeling that way, I want you to consider just for a moment Paul's past failures that he's forgetting. He had persecuted the church. He had even been party to the martyrdom of the first martyr of the church. And yet God said, I choose you to be the one who will take my word to the Gentiles. Surely whatever our past is, it pales in comparison to Paul's. I didn't mean to use that much alliteration, but it does. It, it pales in comparison to Paul's. God tells us, forget it. Forget about it. It's forgiven. It's done. Press on in me. Uh, and so Paul presses forward, not hanging on to the past, not hanging on to his past successes, not burdened by his own failures, but to complete the race and to win the prize. What's the prize? The prize is the promise of eternity with Jesus and all that that entails. And then Paul says that's the reason God has called him heavenward in Christ Jesus. God has called us heavenward so that be, we have been called to be the people of God, both Jews and Gentiles. We have been called to be the people of God so that on that final day we will be found in him. We will stand justified before God because of our identity with Christ. That gets me excited. Looking forward to that day. And then he says, if you're mature, this is how you'll think. He says, 
all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. So he says those who are mature think this way. Those who are mature realize that they aren't perfect. And yet, and they realize that they're not saved by the things they do. They are saved by grace through faith in Christ. And yet they press on. Not holding on to the past, either successes or failures, they press on in obedience. And then he says, just, just live up to what you've already attained. Is he saying that we work for our righteousness? Surely if we've learned anything about Paul through Galatians and Philippians, he would never say such a thing. What he means by that is that we must behave in a manner that is consistent with the truth we've already been given. We must conform our lives, live a life that is worthy of the gospel, conduct ourselves in such a way. Because growth comes through obedience. As we obey, we grow. So then Paul's going to kind of take a little bit of a sharp turn. He's going to begin by saying, follow, follow me. But then he's also going to uh, tell the, the Philippians to watch out for uh, false teachers. Beginning in Verse 17, he says, join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern uh, you, I gave, we gave you. So Paul is saying, um, follow me. He's saying, follow my example. Follow the example of other mature, the, the pattern we gave you. Follow the example of other mature believers, which really means, ladies, that we're following Christ. That we follow that pattern that Christ has handed down to us. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. So that's what we're doing. Why? Well, he's going to tell us, because ungodly people want us to follow them instead. For, follow me, because for as I have told you before, and now say again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. So, so Paul is saying there are enemies of Christ. And, and boy, a lot of very learned people have posited a lot of opinions on who are these people that he's talking about. And the truth of it, of it is, we don't know. And I think, and boy, anybody with a PhD would beg to differ with me, but I think it doesn't matter. I don't think we have to know who these people were that Paul was referring to because here's what, what we do know. There are a lot of people that are enemies of the cross of Christ that are beckoning us to follow them. And we can't do that. Their focus is on earthly things. There are a lot of people that are trying to drag us into a life focused on earthly things. And make no mistake about it, ladies, we have an enemy of our souls that would love nothing more than to knock us off course by taking our focus off of Jesus Christ and putting it onto earthly things. So Paul is saying, don't do that. Don't let them do that to you. Uh, keep your eyes on heavenly things. Stand firm in Christ because there are those that would want you to be knocked off course. But... You live differently. And he, he turns now and gives a contrast to that. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, 
you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So Paul makes a, a, a distinct contrast here. He says, the enemies of the cross of Christ focus on earthly things, but you, your citizenship is in heaven. Your focus is to be on heavenly things. That word citizenship is this word polytuma, which actually is in the exact same, as you can tell, in the exact same word group as that other word, which is what the, when early in the Philippians, when he said, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Remember, we said that what that really means is to have one citizenship. And so live as citizens of heaven. He's reminding, intentionally reminding the Philippians again that they have a higher calling, a more important citizenship than their Roman citizenship, of which they were so proud. They were, and we are, citizens of heaven. Ladies, I've said it before, but this world is not our home. And more and more, I am so happy of that, that it is not our home. And the goal of this life is not to live a nice, comfortable, pain-free life. And ladies, it's not even, and you may not like hearing this, it's not even to live the American dream. The goal of this life, rather, is to stand firm in Christ so that one day we may stand unashamed before Christ because we stood firm. And on that day, Paul tells us, Christ will transform our broken, sinful, earthly bodies into a perfect one that's just like his. And there will be no more crying or pain or tears anymore. Anyone else ready for that day? Yeah, me too. Especially the perfect body part. I'm so ready for that deal. That's a really good deal right there. And then verse 21, I find this interesting, is a long relative clause that is modifying in verse 20, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now for those of you that are not we're not English majors and nor was I. Modifying means it's describing. So the, the whole clause is describing Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring our, everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What Paul is telling us is that, that these words, this, this whole uh, relative clause is focused on Jesus Christ. He's saying, look, folks, we don't have some abstract hope Heaven, harps, gold, you know, golden streets, whatever. We don't have some abstract hope. Our hope is a person. Jesus Christ is our hope. And he is the one that provides all that will be ours in him, in heaven someday. How wonderful is that? And so then he says, this is how you stand firm. How is it? How is it that we stand firm? First of all, by living as citizens of heaven, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, as it says in Hebrews 12, by conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, by not allowing ourselves to be uh, distracted by earthly things, but instead to keep our eyes fixed on the hope of heaven, on the truth of what will someday be. And that hope of heaven is Jesus and all that is promised to us in him. Because as Paul would say, to live is Christ, and to die, that's even better. Amen?
So then he's going to, I entitled this a different sort of ladies' night. Now he's going to talk to those two women that we've uh, been talking about this whole letter. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, here it is, here it is, to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended by my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So here they are, Euodia and Syntyche, their argument that, that caused the whole rift probably. But before we, before we bag on these women too much, uh, I want to name a couple of po few positive things going on in these verses. The first is that they are obviously believers. These two women are obviously believers. Their names are written in the book of life. So he's not saying that they're false apostles or anything like that. They're just two believing women who are having uh, a contentious argument. Secondly, they were even leaders in the church. They, they had, and, and that actually may be part of the problem because it may have been when leaders of a church begin to argue with each other, there's this whole my side, their side thing that goes on. Unfortunately, that still happens in the church too often. Um, but they were leaders in the church. They had contended at Paul's side for the gospel. Uh, and so they, they, they had an important role in the church. Uh, and then thirdly, Paul obviously thought that both they and the church at Philippi were mature enough to handle this public rebuke. Or else he wouldn't have done it. And not everyone is. There's a whole lot of believers that go into, you have no right to judge me mode, when somebody tries to point out, hey, you know, that's not living up to what, what God's called you to do. And he thought they had the, the, um, the maturity to handle that. Now, on the other hand, a not-so-positive thing is that this is an unheard-of rebuke in Paul's letters. Nowhere else does he do this. The closest thing that we have to naming names in a rebuke uh, of believers is in Colossians where a guy, he tells a guy named Archippus to live up to his ministry, to live up to his calling. That's it. Uh, so nowhere does it, there, this strong of a rebuke, and this letter was read in front of the entire congregation. Can you imagine that? Just think, next Sunday, if the pastor got up and in a letter from God said, uh, you two ladies and named you by name, you need to stop arguing because that's just not right. Talk about awkward, you know, embarrassing. I'd be leaving that church in a hurry. What does he tell them to do? He says, agree in the Lord. Actually, that word agree is almost identical to Philippians 2.2, where Paul said, make my joy, joy complete by being like-minded. He's saying, bring your minds together. Be like-minded. Uh, here, like there, Paul is asking them to willfully, intentionally place the, place the other ahead of herself and not insist on having her own way. That is hard to do when you really know you're right, isn't it? Like the argument I had with a Penn State fan yesterday, but we won't talk about that particular <laughs> argument. It's hard to do when you really know you're right. And then he says, agree in the Lord. What does that mean? He's saying agree because you are in the Lord. He's saying this is the right thing to do because you are followers of Jesus Christ. Those who are in the Lord need to agree. So then you might say, but what if we just can't agree? What if, you know, her opinion's not changing and my opinion's not changing? What do we do then? Well, and this is going a little off the text, but, but I think is also in line with the rest of Scripture. I, I would say, first of all, we can agree disagree, or we can disagree agreeably. We can. That's happened to me many times this election season. 
where we can, we can disagree agreeably. We can still say, I love you. I don't agree with that, but I love you. God loves you. I know you're following Christ. We can disagree agreeably. Second, secondly, um, I think that we can choose to continue to love and fellowship with that person despite our disagreement. Set it aside. I love you. I love you too much to allow this to separate our relationship. In other words, by our behavior, we can prevent personal animus and broken relationships as well as forcing those around us to take sides in the argument. Uh, and that's what Paul is calling us to do. And he calls on these loyal yoke fellow. I got to tell you, this is hilarious when you read about this because there are so many different interpretations. Is this singular? Is it plural? Is it a per, an unnamed yoke fellow? There's, this is my favorite one. Paul is addressing or talking about a man whose literal name was yoke fellow. That was his name his mother gave him was yoke fellow. Hey, yoke fellow, help these ladies out. Again, I don't think it matters. I think what Paul is doing is he is calling on mature believers within the church to help these women agree, to come alongside them and, make, uh, and help reconcile them to one another. Uh, we are called in Scripture to be peacemakers, to be reconcilers. So instead of taking sides in the argument, ought we not help our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, put down their figurative weapons, their bitterness, and their pride and in order to agree in the Lord. And ought we not be uh, reconcilers in that process in a, in a loving way? Well, as Paul begins to end his letter, he gives us four exhortations. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. That's the first one, rejoice. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. That's the second one. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. That's the third one. But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. That's the fourth one. Pray about everything. And as you do this, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So here are four uh, sort of admonitions or four exhortations that we may think that they don't have anything to do with each other, but actually they're specifically designed for what was going on at Philippi. I think that these things are, are true and we should be doing them no matter what our situation. But he chose his words carefully for Philippi. First he says, rejoice. Again, whatever your circumstance, rejoice. Always. Not just in the, when the times are good, but always. Let your gentleness be evident. That word for gentleness is a word that means be gentle when the expected response would be retaliation. Be gentle. Even when everybody goes, whoa, how'd she do that? How was she gentle in that situation? Do not be anxious. That word for anxious is often used in context where persecution is near, during times of trial, during times of tribulation. Don't be anxious. Remember the Philippians are dealing with dissension within and persecution from without. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious in this situation. And then finally he says pray. Present your request before God. Pray for every need that you have. And as you do this then, God will guard your hearts with peace. Dr. Silva says, it is not only the peace of God, but the God of peace himself who will overshadow us with his care. I love that. That's beautiful. 
So the, the thing that these words have in common then, to rejoice, to not be anxious, to pray, and to be gentle, the thing that they have in common is, is, is what we're supposed to do when outside forces attack or, or when dissension is within our ranks. And these are things, however, that I said would be helpful anytime to keep rejoicing. Don't retaliate. Don't be anxious. But pray. Because prayer and all of those things bring peace into our lives. I have often said, and I don't think it's untrue, that I have a genetic predisposition to worry. My grandmother was a huge worrier, my mother was a worrier, and I'm a worrier. And I cannot tell you how many times in the last 27 years that I have known Jeff Keezer that he has had to say to me, Amy, don't worry, pray. And that is a balm to my soul that rather than intentionally choosing to lay down my worry and say, I'm going to turn instead to God and to pray about these worries I have. And this verse tells us that when we turn to God in prayer, rather than stewing over our circumstances, that the peace of God stands guard like a garrison of soldiers over our hearts. That's what that word means. It's like this whole troop of soldiers saying, no, mm -mm, I'm not going to let anything touch that heart. I love that word picture. How beautiful is that, that God cares for us in such an intimate way. And that peace, that inner sense of peace and equanimity despite circumstance uh, that's supplied by God, that transcends understanding because that is not what the world expects. How can you not be freaking out? I'd be freaking out. Why aren't you freaking out? And yet God's peace is able to guard our hearts when the anticipated response would be freaking out, would be anxiety. Um, and that's not the way life is oftentimes, is it? At least not in the world, and sometimes too often not in the church, that we allow God's peace through prayer, through rejoicing, to guard our hearts, to stand garrison over our hearts. Uh, but it can be if we rejoice and pray. And then he gives us something to think about in verses 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers, he said finally a lot. I think he keeps thinking it's going to end, but it doesn't. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. There's that word again. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the connection between our thoughts and our actions, because I think there's a real connection there. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Our thoughts become our beliefs, and our beliefs become our actions. And I, I believe every sin, every temptation we have, every sin we commit, begins up here. In fact, James says that in James 1. He says, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed, that after desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. What would happen, this is the thought I had as I read this verse, what would happen if I ran every thought, if I ran everything I watched, everything I read, everything I listened to through this grid? Is it pure? Is it noble? Is it right? Is it good? That would not only change my habits, it would change my life. That's exactly what Paul is asking us to do. 
And then he closes out with a thank you, sort of. It's just kind of a weird thank you, isn't it? I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. I don't mean at last because indeed you have been concerned, but you have had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good for you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I set out for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I'm looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I'm amply supplied now that you, I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent. They are a fragrant, fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so why does he keep qualifying these thanks? Why does he keep saying, hey, thanks, but I didn't need it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't. Well, two reasons. The first is that in Paul's day, there were charlatan preachers who would go out and preach publicly, and their purpose was just to fleece the people listening to them, to get rich off of it. And Paul also went out and preached publicly. And so he wanted to make sure that they understood that I'm not, I'm not asking for this like those false prophets that go out and preach. Um, and actually, Paul had refused help from some churches. He refused help from the Corinthian church uh, at one point. So uh, he had refused help from some churches just to not give that idea that he was trying to line his pockets with uh, his preaching. And then also he wanted to make sure that there wasn't even a hint of any sort of financial shenanigans. That's a technical term, their financial <laughs> shenanigans. Um, in fact, when he uh, was collecting money for the poor church in Jerusalem and he was asking for donations from the church he was visiting, churches he was visiting, he always took somebody from that church, at least one person from that church, with him on the journey. And they carried that money. So somebody from Philippi carried the Philippians' money. He didn't touch it. He wanted to make sure that there was not even a hint of any wrongdoing financially. And so that's part of what he's trying to convey here. I think more importantly is he's talking about what true contentment is. And he says, look, I know what it means to be rich. I know what it means to, hello, I'm sitting here in prison. <laughs> I know what it means to be poor. I said hello. I didn't mean to say, make that sound like I was saying something other than hello. Um, and he's saying, I know, I know what it means to be content, no matter what my situation, um, because true contentment is not found in having things. It's found in Jesus. It's found in having Jesus and knowing that he will help us face anything. That's the actual meaning of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not, because I have Jesus, I can jump the Grand Canyon. I, I can pass calculus even though the last math class I took was algebra 2. No, I can't, no matter how much I love Jesus. He's not saying I can do anything in the world. He's saying I can face anything in life because I have Jesus. It's not some sort of power of positive thinking bumper sticker. He's also, I think more importantly here, telling us the true value of the Philippians' gift. And we're going to race through this a little bit. But he's saying the true value of the Philippians' gift isn't in his benefit. It's in theirs. It's that it benefited them spiritually to give. 
um, and that God will meet their needs because of it, not as payment for their gift, but as his free response. You know, in our culture, we have a really messed up idea of what needs are. I tell my kids all the time when they say, I need an iPhone, I need, a, I need this, I say need is an interesting concept, a very fluid concept in my children's minds. Truly, we all have way more than we need. We really do. We have way more than we need. Richard Foster says, anyone with enough money to buy a book is wealthy relative to the rest of the world. And I can attest to that because of a man named Evans Chola, who is a pastor in uh, Zambia, who had a book. It was his English Bible. It's how he learned English. His English is impeccable. He just read the Bible and God taught him English. And I, that thing is beat up. When he came to pastor training, Brookside Church gave him three books. They gave him um, a Bible in Bemba, his native language, and two study helps. And he was so excited, he almost was crying. And he said, I'm going to need to build a bookshelf because now I have four books. And Chelsea, help me. Help me. The church at Teta has how many people? Hundreds. Hundreds of people. How many Bibles? They now, I think, have seven. I have seven in my house, sitting there right now. We truly have more than we need. And um, I would exhort all of us to consider two things when we're reading that line, my God shall supply all your needs. First is to remember that he already has, and then some. And second, to remember that our greatest need is not stuff. Our greatest need is spiritual. Our greatest need is Jesus, who will give us the strength we need to endure. Secondly, I'd like to tell you that giving is powerful. And that's what Paul is saying. Not, the importance of this gift isn't the impact on me. It's the impact on you. That as we give, we begin to release our hold on stuff and on things and realize it's a whole lot more fun to give it away than to keep it myself. Here's what uh, Richard Thielman says about this. He says, the most powerful antidote to these deceptions that stuff is, means something is to give generously from our wealth to those who have need, especially, as Paul would say, to those who are of the household of faith. It is a powerful thing. And my thought as I was reading this was, have I ever considered the spiritual good that it does me to give things away, to not hold on to that money? It not only meets the need of another, but it loosens the gr grip money and materialism have on my own life. And if given with the proper motive, it is evidence that the Spirit of God is alive and well and working in our lives. Surely one of the most appropriate applications of these verses would be for us to prayerfully consider how God would have us give of our wealth to his work at home and around the world. Well, I'm just going to read uh, these last verses and then I'm going to read a quote for us to end. He ends by saying, Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus, the brothers who with me send their greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you in your spirit. Amen. Paul begins as he, or Paul ends as he began with grace. It's all 
of grace. And I couldn't think of a better way to end this than to just quote Dr. Thielman. He says, Paul concludes the letter in much the way, same way he began with a reference to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The same grace that transformed Paul from a persecutor of the church into its apostle will sustain the Philippians as they seek to stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the, gospel of the, for the faith of the gospel. This benediction then serves as much more than a rote formula tacked on to the end of a letter. It leaves ringing in the Philippians' ears the message that the gospel, because it reveals God's grace, is good news and reason enough to rejoice in the Lord. That is what I pray is ringing in our ears as we end this letter. Ladies, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for sticking with me, for putting up with my long-windedness. Uh, and really, honestly, I, I couldn't do this without you. I probably could, but they might put me in a straitjacket. <laughs> for teaching to an empty room. Uh, I am so grateful that you are here. Thank you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, a wonderful Christmas. And I'd just like to end by playing, praying a blessing over all of you. Father God, I just pray that you would bless these women. Uh, pray, I pray that your grace and your provision and your love and your spirit over them, Father. I pray that as, they, oh, as we walk through the season of Thanksgiving, that we would be keenly aware of our gratitude toward you. And then as we walk through the season of your son's birth, may we, with renewed eyes and renewed hearts, see the gift that you have given us in Christ. Thank you for each woman here, Father. I pray that you would bless them and grow them up in you and for me too. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you so much, ladies. I appreciate it.